Hello and welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran, a historian, and my day job is I'm a museum director. And with us this week, we're going to be talking about the rule of law, and we have an excellent guest to talk with that to talk about that topic with, Ben Kaiser, who is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps and a founder of We the Veterans. So uh, welcome. Hey, Jason. Good to be here. Thanks. Great to have you. So if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, We the Veterans. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I served in the Marine Corps. Um, I was uh, actually actually joined up while I was in college. I was a little too impatient, waiting until I graduated. So enlisted in the reserves at nineteen. Uh, went off to boot camp after my sophomore year. I was actually in law school at University of San Diego in two thousand and two, beginning of two thousand and three, when my reserve unit was called up. So I had to actually drop out of law school to deploy. Um, after I finished law school, practiced law in, in Washington, D.C., uh, did, I actually spent a lot of time in New York working on the World Trade Center redevelopment. Um, but uh, big, large firm life wasn't for me, as it turned out. So I had developed a specialization in um, sustainability, energy efficiency, so made it uh an easy slide into tech, and I'm now the chief risk officer for an AI company. Uh, we focus on facility and plant optimization, but uh, another a number of other inter- interesting things as well. So we, the veterans, um, were an organization of veterans and military family members that engage that community to support American democracy. So... You know, there's a host of really great post 9-11 organizations that work with veterans, especially to serve in capacities like Team Rubicon and the Mission Continues. Um, But, you know, things have changed over the past six, seven years. And there's a need for this community to really step up and engage on matters that are critical to maintaining a healthy democracy here. Right. So. And, you know, frankly, we're the ideal group for it. Veterans have taken an oath. Veterans and military families have a history of service and sacrifice. We're more independently minded rather than sort of partisan, right? So 50% of veterans identify as independent. That's about 20% higher than those who haven't served. Um, And, you know, we have the trust and admiration of our fellow citizens, right? So that's like a, that's a responsibility to uphold and a privilege to, continue to earn really right um and i you know i should say we're, we're composed of a 501c19 that's a veterans organization and a traditional 501c3 so we're staunchly nonpartisan. we stay above the political fray and we focus on the foundational principles of our democracy and that, that's actually a perfect segue because i wanted to make sure i stated this somewhere that when we talk about the rule of law uh, and, and how that pertains to democracy and elections. There's a tendency sometimes to focus on individuals and then their, the individual behaviors. But today we want to focus on the ideas, as you said, principles. And I think that's an excellent segue into this topic of the rule of law. And so yeah. uh, what do you think? I mean, can we do we have a is there an agreed upon definition for the rule of law that that's used out there that we could use today? Well, I, I don't know that there's necessarily an agreed on one, but um, I think, you know, you and I had talked about the definition that's used by the American Bar Association. Um, and that says, 
the rule of law is a set of principles or ideals for ensuring an orderly and just society. Many countries throughout the world strive to uphold the rule of law. We're known as above the law. Here's the critical parts, right? Known as above the law. Everyone's treated equally under the law. Everyone's held accountable to the same laws. There are clear and fair processes for enforcing laws. Independent judiciary and human rights are guaranteed for, for all. So that's, so, a, that's a good definition. Yeah, I think so. And it's pretty digestible, too, right? Um, but it, this is, I think, rule of law, when you think about it, it's one of those cases where it's easiest to illustrate the principles through examples of where they're broken, right? Where it's not working, right? Sure. You, know, you can... You can look abroad and you can look through history and you can find countries where there are pretty clearly two, if not more, systems of justice, one for the powerful or the in-group versus everybody else. Um, But, you know, it's also critical to, to remember that rule of law can be infringed in sort of less black and white and more systemic, insidious ways, right? Like, we, we do pretty well in the U.S., but we're not perfect. We're, we're like actually pretty low on rule of law index relative to some of our European counterparts. Um, you know, one, one like pretty simple example that should resonate with everyone is kind of, is like money in the judicial system. So if you have a good enough, if you have, if you have enough money to afford a really good lawyer, your outcome is going to be much better than those who don't, right? Absolutely. And that's, and that's, although, you know, someone, someone might call that like a rich country problem. It's still, it still is uh, an area where rule of law is technically undermined and, and could be improved. Yeah. And the, the end of that definition there is interesting to me uh, when we're talking about, you know, equal treatment and, and human rights guaranteed for all. So if you wanted to get really technical and split hairs, you could argue that probably almost nobody really meets that standard fully. Uh, but we make great efforts to get as close as we can. Indeed, right. I mean, that's that's the idea, right? So in, in American democracy, especially our Constitution, like these are foundational principles, aspirational principles that we probably will never reach. But it's our job. It's our duty to keep you know bending the arc towards a better, a more perfect union, as we say. Right. A- absolutely. And that's. And with the, the Veterans for Responsible Leadership, with VFRL, that's one of that that pertains directly to two of the pillars that the organization has, and uh, that's hold elected and non-elected officials accountable for operating within the framework of the Constitution, and, and this one critically, protecting the integ- integrity of elections and and Americans' faith in the process. So I think that's for folks listening. That's why we we wanted to focus on this topic today. Sure. Um, yeah, I would. I guess I would say. You know, generally speaking, elected officials are representatives of the people, right? They, they can move the machinery of government to one degree or another, but they're people's representatives. And then you have some elected, unelected officials, rather, that you can maybe think of more as representatives of, of the state, per se. And it, it is a gray area. While the government in the U.S. is by and for the people, technically the state, the state is a separate and distinct entity in some ways with its own interests, right? Um, anyway, you know, ultimately what's what's critical to have rule of law is that the state itself, and especially, I would argue, the people's representatives must be accountable to and subordinate to the law, right? Um, but at the end of the day, and here's like, here's the rub, right? Laws are just words on paper. 
in order to have rule of law, which is a higher principle, you have to have a critical mass of people who feel collectively bound by it and bound to uphold it, right? So, you know, you're always, we're always going to have bad actors in society. We're always going to have, you know, um, people uh, in, in corporate environment, business people breaking the law, right? And everywhere else. But that's sort of underwritten into the system. That's why we have police and prisons, right? Other non-custodial deterrents. But where it gets dangerous is when you start to see commitment to the principles erode at scale to the extent that it threatens that critical mass, right? When groups of people and elected and non-elected officials for one reason or another decide that you know, they shouldn't be beholden to these norms, the collective agreements that we call the rule of law. It's like any other adoption curve. There's a point of capitulation. Um, yeah, so, and, and we're all human, right? We make decisions based on emotion and our base or instincts, and then we seek to justify them with logic after the fact. So uh, that's why you see, like, would-be dictators around the world, and you try to unpick their logic, and it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But that doesn't mean that their followers believe in their convictions any less, right? Politic, plenty of like violent political extremists believe themselves to be patriots. And, you know, in many cases that's just because they've been duped, right? Absolutely. You know, and, and you mentioned the, the enforcement mechanisms, which are of course a, a central aspect of the rule of law at, at one end of the spectrum. And on the other end, you have the supreme law of the land here, the constitution, which as you alluded to earlier, veterans all took a, all swore an oath. We all did to uphold, to protect and defend the constitution. And so here in the United States, other countries of course do it differently. Uh, other countries have dis- different constitutions that, that function in a different way. For example, our, our constitution is relatively short. Uh, India's constitution is, is quite lengthy. I think they hold the world record for the longest written constitution. Uh, and of course, they are the world's most numerous democracy by voters. But so when we talk about the rule of law here, it also means that we that we follow the constitution's guidelines for the kinds of laws we pass and the types of actions that we allow the state to take, right? Because the constitution exists to restrain the government, not citizens. Would you agree with that? Um, the Constitution exists to restrain the government and not citizens. To an extent. I I think to an extent, but then you you can't can't sort of say something like that without then also looking at the social contract, right? Sure. So, you know, social contract, it basically says, um, you know, I... I give up some amount of my liberties and rights in order to make sure that your liberties and rights are mostly protected, right? Um, And so, um, you know, collectively, we're all much better off after after that. And I think those those principles are sort of enshrined in the Constitution as, as well. Yeah, and that's important because it gives that society in question a mechanism, a nonviolent mechanism, very crucially, to address any problems that they have or to make changes that they think are necessary. So if we want to enact a public policy or pass laws that change the way citizens behave, there's a mechanism for us to do that that doesn't involve uh, resorting to armed conflict. You know, we could have an election where we decide it, or we can have a debate where we decide it, and then we can use the Constitution as a guideline. We don't have to resort to uh, open conflict to settle the issue. So that's a good thing. Yeah, most certainly. And, and back to back to your initial question. Yeah, so sure, the U.S. Constitution is the foundation for rule of law here. It, it, it includes a supremacy clause as well that essentially says that 
the Constitution takes precedence over, you know, state laws, territory laws, um, and also no, no state or territory could interfere, for example, with the exercise of federal power that's derived from the Constitution. Um, you know, another feature that is not unique per se, but that's critical for our system is that our government officials, including, of course, our service members, we our oath is sworn to the Constitution itself, right? Not to any person or party. And this even differs among close allies like the UK, who for some reason still swear their oath to the Queen. Right? They you know? do. But that sort of thing kind of gets in your head. What you know, you're thinking about the Queen versus the Constitution. I, I think there's a material difference there. And then you know, take a take a system like China, where judges are prohibited from even citing the Constitution, and Chinese lawyers learn that on their you know bar admission course that uh, that the Constitution is there, but it's always subject to the sort of leadership of the party, quote-unquote. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that about China. Yeah, I just learned it recently myself. <laughs> oh, wow. And so we have, this, we have this overarching framework that provides sort of the rules of the game for how our legal system and government functions, and that's particularly important when it comes to uh, elections and protecting the integrity of elections because it lets everybody know what the rules are and what happens if you break them, right? So we can't have free and fair elections without the rule of law. Totally. I think there's a few keys to election integrity. So for an election to be credible, you have to have clear and fair rules that apply sort of before, leading up to, during and after an election. Um, and like any other feature of a rule of law system, you need reliability and predictability. And so this is about ensuring that all eligible voters can vote. We can argue about what an eligible voter ought to be, but once they're eligible, they can vote, that their votes are properly and transparently counted, um, and that there's a fair and open process for resolving any disputes, which in turn follow rule of law principles, right? Exactly. So we, I mean, we know that, we, mo we know both statistically and anecdotally that our elections are secure, right? I mean, they're, that they're very fair and the outcomes are very credible. Um, and, and where disputes are raised, they're resolved, you know, in, in the courts by an independent judiciary. Um, and, you know, I say anecdotally because, you know, among other things, one of the campaigns that we, the veterans, is working on right now is mobilizing veterans and military family members to, to work at the polls and to, um, you know, kind of like, so if, if you look at statistics, we're, we're already probably overrepresented as poll workers between the veteran and military family community. We're more likely to vote. We're more likely to um, volunteer to serve in our communities. But if we take what's probably that sort of 150 to 200,000 already serving poll workers, and we can move that number up to, let's call it 300 to 350,000. Well, you know, now you're talking about, you know, maybe one in three out of the every, you know, the million poll workers that serve in a presidential election year is a veteran or military family member. And the, the folks that, that, you know, that we talk to who have served, um, and even among our board, um, what we hear is largely the same, right? It's routine, it's secure, it's well-regimented work, and it's undertaken by committed citizen servants who all care about one thing, right? Doing it the right way. 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring up poll workers. Um, so there have been, of course, the pandemic is one, one reason for this. There have been in, in past a couple years a shortage of folks that, that are volunteering to do that. And so it's good to see veterans, you know, stepping into that void. But I wonder if you want to talk just briefly about some of the other reasons why we might be seeing a shortage of poll workers. And do you think that, that potentially uh, poll workers that have received threats or have been in, uh, people have tried to intimidate them, do you, do you think at scale that has anything to do with the, uh, the vacancies that have been become more problematic for that uh, area for poll workers? We have fewer of them because they're scared to, uh, to do it? Most certainly. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we hear all the time about folks who, you know, have served for many years and have decided that they just can't keep doing it anymore for one reason or another, um, whether, as you say, it's it's COVID or because of the toxic sort of politically charged environment that we're in. Yeah, and, and that's crucial because if you if you reach a point, you mentioned a, a curve earlier where there, and there's a point where functionality ceases, the same is true for the uh, election process, and if if the mechanisms or components of that process are, are threatened with, with physical violence to the point where they can't function anymore, then that violence becomes a threat to the integrity of the elections because we can't carry them out anymore. So, you know, in that sense, we have, you know, sort of political extremism is contrary to the rule of law. I mean, it, it erodes that, as you mentioned earlier. It can be very insidious. It can do it gradually uh, and in a systematic way that doesn't seem obvious at first. And then all of a sudden you look around and go, where are all my poll workers? Well, they're, they're afraid to come in. Yeah, uh, most certainly that is the sort of logical conclusion of where things could go uh, in the event that there was widespread, you know, political, violent unrest. We're, we're not there now. You know? Right, but I agree. That's not to say that some folks haven't been um, either turned off or in- intimidated. But, but hey, what better group to fill that void to the extent it exists than veterans and, you know, also to, to some extent military family members, right? Like, we're, we're trained to handle stress. We've Many of us, especially the post-9-11 cohort, um, you know, and others, of course, have been in combat, right? They, they, they've been in um, situations that they've had to de-escalate. They understand how to do these things, and they're, in some cases, trained to do it. So, yeah, hey, I mean, getting the the veterans and military family bodies in those positions is also is, is one critical component of this campaign, but also, you know, look, we, we want to, um, a secondary goal is to leverage the brand of this community as representatives of one of the most trusted institutions in the country, um, to support the confidence in election and to turn down the, the heat. No, that's, that's very important. And, and, you know, poll after poll will tell you, that the U.S. military is far and away the most trusted institution in America. I think it's something around somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of the respondents had a, had a favorable or a high, you know, trustworthiness view of the military, as opposed to, you know, say, recent polls of Congress, which are down around 20 percent. So that, that's a huge difference. Huge difference, indeed. Although I, I, I think I read in the uh, some excellent work by Chris Marvin, who, uh, you know, did the veteran self, uh, veteran civic health index scientists may actually hold a, uh, slightly more trusted position than the military. If you can mm. believe that in oh. the era of COVID. Well, that would be good if it's true. Right. And, uh, so you mentioned that, that critical, um, backup that they can provide to, um, 
the election system by working as as, um, as poll takers and poll workers. Um, because we've seen, as you mentioned earlier, from, from folks that have combat experience, one of the other things that we've encountered through our service, especially those of us who have served abroad and in, in combat zones, we've seen what happens in countries where there is no rule of law. We've seen what happens when it gets eroded or overturned, uh, and we, we're, we're quite familiar with, the, uh, with what that looks like, and we never, ever want to see that here in the United States. No, indeed, right? Um, I think the closest, clearly we had some issues in the last election cycle, but you know, if, we're, if we want to look for sort of an instructive example, you can, you can look at Bush v. Gore, right? It's, it's sort of like a caveat and a validation all at the same time, really, right? Like, on the one hand, that decision was problematic for a number of reasons, right? Not the least of which was that, in my opinion, and many others, it exceeded the federal government's authority, and the logic on which it was based was absurd. But on the other hand, our legal process was followed, the Supreme Court being the final say on whatever matters it decides it has a say over, um, you know, made a decision. And the aggrieved party, the vice president, no less, acceded to its authority, you know? Um, I think that's where you see an example of our system holding very well. That, that's absolutely right. And, I, and I'll provide you with a, an easy example of the exact opposite abroad. Uh, recently in Iraq, you've got Mukhtar al-Sadr, who is a, a Shiite they call him a cleric. I don't. I don't really know if he has bona fide religious credentials or not. I, I wondered about that when I was in Iraq, because he was still causing trouble when I was there back in 2006. But anyway, he, he's decided that the um, the the Iraqi government doesn't isn't to his liking, and so he's called for his supporters to take violent actions against the Iraqi government, which they have now done and are currently doing. So there's been an upswing recently in the past week or so in in violence in Baghdad and in the area around there, especially. The, where his supporters live, and now it's even gotten to the point where he's trying to pull it back a little bit, but it's, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle once you let it out. Um, and so there, there's a crystal example of, of how bad things can get when an aggrieved party doesn't respect um, the, the decision of the government. It doesn't go along with um, the, the normal established process. Totally. And when were you, you were in OIF, right? What year were you in OIF? I was, I was there in 06, 07. The, the very, very beginning, 2003. Oh, okay. I, I'm sorry. Just just curious. I, I meant to ask that earlier. It means I probably got a couple years on you. Is that, is that what you're saying? Uh, no, not necessarily, actually. It just You just got there first. So. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so we have, um, it's good that organizations like VFRL and We the Veterans are out there um, taking those lessons learned that we've, we've seen the hard way in other places. Uh, we don't want that to happen here. So... Can you talk a little bit about maybe what what those how those organizations are, are actively working to support the rule of law? But is there are there examples other than you know poll workers? I mean, is there there has to be more than that? I would think. Yeah, great point um, or great question rather. So uh, you know one one of our main pillars is civic engagement. Um, you know within which is uh, civic education. So. You know, you, you really you have to have an, an, a, a critical ingredient is an informed citizens, citizenry, right? Free to engage in open discourse. Um, and, you know, understanding how our system works and, frankly, where its flaws are make each of us better equipped to sort of resist inf- misinformation and easy fixes, right? So, um, 
what's the saying? For for every complex problem, there's an answer that's clear, simple, and wrong. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the sort of anti-democratic propaganda in a nutshell, right? It appeals to like our base desires for things to be simple and black and white. But the more we know, especially about our system of government, the more those red flags can go off in our heads. You know, hey, wait. You know, it would be nice if it were that simple, but I'm not sure that it is. And actually, I think, uh, you know, the Constitution provides for something different. And, you know, our federalist system uh, requires that different practices follow or something like that, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it, you know, we take a vaccine uh, against a, as protection against a virus. Education almost, in a way, inoculates folks from, to a degree at least, from uh, misinformation. Many of the claims that you hear or have heard, we have heard in the past um, about uh, election irregularities or, or fraud, uh, a person with sufficient education on how the process actually works would have picked up almost immediately that the claims themselves were nonsensical because they, they, they're predicated on an assumption about how the system works that is, isn't true. So if you knew how the system actually worked, that, that claim would seem ridiculous to you, right, right off the bat. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we have such a great opportunity in the military, frankly, to, well, because, you know, if you take a step back, our veterans and military family members, for better or for worse, are kind of given a lot of credibility in the civic arena, right? But, you know, frankly, we may not be any more educated. I'd have to look at the statistic, right? I could be totally wrong about this, but we we may not be any more competent on civic issues than the general public, right? Um, we, We ought to be taking the opportunity to educate our service members and provide opportunities for their family members to learn about civic, um, you know, our sort of like system of government, other civic matters throughout the life of our uh, service commitments, right? I mean, you know, we learn so much about military history and traditions on induction, there's no reason why there shouldn't be a module around civic education. Life of service in the Marine Corps, we had something called MCI, right? Uh, Marine Corps Institute. You had to be constantly, you know, learning things about your job, about, about the Marine Corps. Why couldn't we include civic education in there? And then, of course, you know, there's the transition program. Part of that program should be about how you can now go on to continue your service as a well-informed citizen. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking, um, I know on the, I, I went through officer training school, so on the O side, I know we have a, a lot of PME, professional military education, where topics like that come up. I can't think of a, a specific module for civic engagement, but it certainly came up in a lot of them. And I think, I think on the enlisted side, it's, it's like you mentioned, it's true, th- those type of um, either coursework or classes, it, it comes up a, as part of other courses if it's not a focus itself. Um, so that, that's really a, a good thing, you know. F- we sometimes we forget as military members when we when we get that those those types of educational opportunities. I mean, that's being provided to us free cost. You know, in the civilian world, you got to pay to take a class, but a lot of times we get training in the military that's provided to us uh, at no additional expense to ourselves. So we're really thankful for that. Totally. And on the civilian side, you know, you don't have to be if if you're even if you're no longer in active duty or the reserves. I mean, another crucial aspect of education is literacy, right? 
if you want to be a leader, you got to be a reader. Um, so I, I would encourage folks to read. I mean, there's a lot of good books out there, a lot of good work that's done on this topic of the rule of law. And there's a long history, which we, of course, don't have time to get into today. Uh, I'm a historian, so I, you, I could do a whole you know class just on the history of it. Uh, but there's a lot of good uh, written works out there. So I would encourage folks to uh, go to their you know local bookstore or library, or you can get them in, on ebook form online now and, uh, and to do reading to uh, educate themselves on the topic. Absolutely. And that serves as kind of an antidote to uh, the erosion of the rule of law and to political extremism. So I, I think if we had a more informed citizenry, and, and I'm glad to be working with folks like yourself who are out there doing this as, on a volunteer basis to help make that difference in our country, because I agree that there's a, a strong need for it, and that need will probably continue uh, in the future. Oh, it most certainly will. Um, you know, it's only just becoming so much more apparent that uh, how critical it is, isn't it? Absolutely. So if, if folks were interested, if they heard this and they say, hey, I want to I want to join up or I want to be part of one of these organizations, where would you recommend they go? Uh, website, Facebook, uh, Instagram, I mean, Twitter, there's a lot of different uh, organizations use different platforms more or less than others. So I'm not sure about you guys, which one you, you promote the most. Yeah, sure. So uh, you can check out the main organization at uh, wetheveterans.us, and our Vet the Vote campaign is vettheveterans.vote. I have to admit, I do not know exactly what our social handles are. That's okay. <laughs> so, you know, some, like I said, some organizations are like, they're all about Facebook, and other ones will say, we don't use that yeah. at all, it's all Twitter. I mean, it just depends on, you know, which organization you're talking about. Yeah, we're on. We're on. Uh, we're definitely on um, between the vet, the vote campaign persona, and we the veterans. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Excellent. Uh, and so, just for folks out there listening, I would say you know being involved with an effort like that and organizations like yours or VFRL, I almost I almost consider that to be a continuation of service. I mean, it, you're still serving the community and the country, uh, even though you may no longer be in uniform. Uh, you can still do that and make a difference. Most certainly. Any uh, final thoughts or parting shots uh, on the topic of rule of law and uh, the, the volunteers that are out there working to support it? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'll say is, look, we're coming into an off, uh, off presidential cycle election. Um, you know, I think a couple things are going to happen, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to become more apparent how critical the shortage of poll workers is. We're going to see that have effects like um, polling places being closed. Some of that is happening under the radar because things like, you know, budget allocations are being done, you know, not in a, in a very transparent way. So, you know, we're finding out every day that, that uh, different localities are sort of at risk. So, you know, if you're hearing this uh, and you're not already signed up to be a poll worker, you know, please do. You can do, throw, do so through the vet.vote site. It doesn't matter if you're a veteran or a military family member, you can go there and you can still sign up. Um, and then secondly, I think, you know, everybody um, hopefully needs to try and keep a cool head through the election season, right? Um, you know, the elections are going to be run freely, fairly, competently, credibly, uh, all those things. And so, you know, if your candidate happens to be the loser, um, you know, I, be very careful about listening to, you know, claims of election fraud is the reason they lost. Yeah, it's actually very, very difficult to cheat at scale. 
uh, in, a, in an American election. Our system is not only good, it learns from previous instances to do that. And so the system we have in place is built on lessons learned from every previous election. Uh, so it's actually, it's just darn almost near darn near impossible to cheat at scale uh, in, a, in a U.S. election and not get caught. So, yeah, that's right. So people should have faith in the process uh, because it works, not just because we're telling them to, uh, but because it actually does work. Yeah, and, and that's something that we should all be very, very proud of, right? We live, we, we've got a lot to be proud of in this country. We, um, you know, all need to continue to work, like we talked about before, about making it a more perfect union. But what we've got is something, you know, that uh, we should be very, very proud of, and everybody should... Um, you know, be very happy with to some extent. Yeah, you'll never please everyone, and it, it's no fun losing. Um, but, but that's why we have more elections, right? If you lose one, there's going to be another one. There'll be another election in the future. So if you really feel that passionately about it, then, uh, you know, try again in the next time. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and that and, and the related, related to keeping the heat down is to not see every election as an existential crisis, right? Um, they are temporary. Um, you know, the government... The, the structures that we have in place are holding um, and just, you know, wait till the next cycle and you'll get to have a chance to have your, vo- your voice heard again. Yeah, that's something Mark Twain commented on once. He said, the thing I love about exaggeration is I can listen to someone exaggerate and then I can take that man's exaggeration and exaggerate it some more. Uh, so you, it turns into like a sport of hyperbole, which just means, you know, the sport of exaggeration. So we, we do have a tendency to do that. And you're right. We should try to guard against that, especially during an election. Indeed. All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time. Um, Thanks for talking with us. And this is an important topic, a timely topic, especially during an election year, but any year. So uh, appreciate you being here and I hope you have a great afternoon. Yes, same to you, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. Take care. Cheers, buddy. Okay. And thanks to everyone for listening. This has been a Veterans for Responsible Leadership podcast on the rule of law. You can find us online at www.vfrl.org. We're also on Twitter and on Facebook. And thanks for listening. Hope everyone has a great day. Take care.